Hello, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast. I'm Phil Freeman, and in this episode, I'll be talking to guitarist Vernon Reed. Before I start the introduction proper, though, I have an announcement to make. In addition to this podcast, Burning Ambulance is also a website and a weekly Substack email and a record label. And this month, we've released two great new CDs. The first is the self-titled debut by Breath of Air, which is a new trio featuring guitarist Brandon Ross, who was on this podcast three episodes ago, and violinist Charles Burnham and drummer Warren Benbow. Both of those two men were members of James Blood Ulmer's Odyssey Trio, and Brandon, of course, is a member of Harriet Tubman. But Breath of Air doesn't sound anything like either of those two groups. They sound like a kind of psychedelic drone rock mixed with black string band music. And if you like Sun, or if you like Tony Conrad and Faust, or if you like $75 Bill, I think this is going to be one of the most amazing records you'll hear all year. The other CD is Inner Voices by Jose Lancaster, a Portuguese saxophonist who's a member of a bunch of groups. But this is a really unique solo release on which he overdubs multiple horn lines, harmonizing with himself and also interacting with live electronics played by the album's producer, a guy named Ari. It's almost like a dub remix of the World Saxophone Quartet. It's really beautiful, dreamlike music, and it sounds like nothing else I've ever heard. That's what we strive for at Burning Ambulance Music, is to give the world sounds they've never heard before. Whether it's the Indonesian ritual industrial drone metal duo Senyawa, or saxophonist Evo Perlman in duo with trumpeter Nate Woolley, or pianist Matthew Shipp and drummer Whit Dickey, or cornet player Graham Haynes with electronic musicians submerged. We release new music in the most literal sense, And yes, we make CDs, not vinyl. But our releases are beautiful physical objects. They're packaged in heavy cardboard gatefold mini LP style sleeves, not jewel cases or digipacks. We give you something truly special for your money. And you can buy them direct from us at the Burning Ambulance Music page on bandcamp.com. So pause this podcast or just open up a new browser tab and go there now and listen to any and or all of our releases and buy them. We only put out a couple of records a year because if we're going to put something out, it's going to be great. So give these artists your money. Now, let's get back to the subject at hand. I have said two things all season long. The first is that we're going to be exploring a single topic for 10 episodes, and that topic is fusion. But the second thing I've been saying is that what I'm talking about when I say the word fusion isn't a style or a genre, but a state of mind. It's not what you play, it's how you approach music making. In previous episodes, we've talked about what people typically think of as fusion, which drummer Lenny White, who appeared in episode two of this series, prefers to call jazz rock. That's the version that more or less starts with Miles Davis's Bitches Brew and Tony Williams' Lifetime, and branches out to include Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return to Forever and Weather Report. But my version of that continuum also includes early 70s Santana, 
It includes the Fania All-Stars collaborating with Jan Hammer and Billy Cobham. It includes adventurous funk and R&B fusion like P-Funk and Earth, Wind & Fire and the Ohio Players and Slave. And it includes jazz funk acts like Donald Byrd and Freddie Hubbard and George Duke. Vernon Reed is a guitarist who was born in England but grew up in New York. He's best known as the leader of Living Color and one of the co-founders of the Black Rock Coalition along with the late writer Greg Tate. But he's got a long and varied discography that encompasses solo material, working with Mick Jagger, doing duo and trio work with other guitarists like Bill Frizzell, David Torn, and Elliot Sharp, and guest appearances with a ton of groups from Public Enemy to the Rollins Band to Santana to Janet Jackson to Mariah Carey and many, many more. His solo album, Mistaken Identity from 1996, is the only album to carry co-producer credits from Prince Paul and Teo Macero. Back in 2012, he made an album with a group called Spectrum Road, which featured John Modeski on keyboards, Jack Bruce on bass, and Cindy Blackman Santana on drums. It was conceptually a tribute to Tony Williams' lifetime, but it's very much its own thing as well, so definitely check that out. Reed got his start, though, with drummer Ronald Shannon Jackson's band The Decoding Society. He played guitar, banjo, and guitar synth with that group, which had two bassists, Melvin Gibbs, who was on this podcast a couple of years ago, and Reverend Bruce Johnson, and then some horn players, mostly Zane Massey on saxophones and Henry Scott on trumpet. It's high-energy music that's also really melodic in a kind of post-primetime way. Jazz, funk, rock, Texas blues, and West African music all swirled together and thrown straight at your face at 100 miles an hour. Their albums Nasty, Street Priest, Man Dance, Barbecue Dog, Montreux Jazz Festival, and Earned Dreams are all incredible. They're all out of print right now, too, but uh, some of them are on streaming services, so go looking. Dig up whatever you can. Reed has a new record out with the group Freeform Funky Freaks, spelled F-R-E-Q-S, like frequencies. It's a trio with bassist Jamaladeen Takuma, who's also been on this podcast before, and drummer Calvin Weston. And as he explains in this conversation, it's full-on improv, starting from zero every time they play together. And because it's so limited, no rehearsals, no sound checks with all three members, they know exactly how many times they've played together. And the album uh, represents their 73rd encounter. It's called Hymn of the Third Galaxy, sort of a tribute to Return to Forever there, who had an album called Hymn of the Seventh Galaxy. And you'll hear a little bit of the music later in the podcast. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. I've been a fan of Vernon Reed's music for about 35 years. The first Living Color album came out when I was in high school, and I saw them play on the first Lollapalooza Festival in the summer of 1991. And I interviewed him once before, about 10 years ago, when he was doing a multimedia presentation called Artificial Africa. So in this conversation, we talk about his work with the Decoding Society, about the Freeform Funky Freaks, 
about the whole wave of guitarists who came up around the same time he did, including Michael Gregory Jackson and Kelvin Bell and John Paul Borelli and Brandon Ross, as well as older players like James Blood Ulmer and Pete Cozy and Sonny Chirac. We talk about a lot of things, and I'm just going to end this introduction here so you can dive in. to talk to you uh, for this podcast for a while and th I figure this right, right. this season is the perfect time to do it because all year long I've been talking to people about fusion but mm. not sure. limiting the discussion to the music of the 70s you know John McLaughlin Chick Corea right. Weather Report stuff yeah. like that because right right I talked to Lenny White early on, but I also talked to Jeff Mills, the techno DJ. You know, I've talked right. to mm -hmm. people from, you know, from all sorts of backgrounds. And because mm -hmm. what I'm talking about is fusion as a mindset, sort of something like what oh, Bill Laswell mm -hmm. calls collision music, where you combine sounds without knowing for sure what the result's going to be. And I feel like right. a lot of your work is fusion in that broader sense. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, I mean, it's a music that's been much maligned and uh, I think misunderstood. And you know, in a way, I mean, there were many different types of fusions as well. You know, people tend to focus on, you know, jazz rock fusion and um. And certainly that, you know, that, that was some of the most, um, uh, that was some of the most impactful music, but there was, there was a whole R&B fusion thing that was going on. There was a whole thing movement in the sixties, you know, of, uh, I mean, way before smooth jazz or Grover Washington, I mean, there was a Latin R&B fusion, the Latin jazz fusion, so, you know, mm -hmm. so there were a lot of different types of, uh, you know, collisions, co you know, like mix and match and see what it does. And, you know, of course, technology had a, had a very strong role to play. Um, new ways of making music and new sounds. I mean, there was an explosion in technology. I mean, you could think about it from the introduction of the electric bass, um, or, or the introduction from the, the introduction of the electric guitar on. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a, a, a there was a seismic change in technology and what sounds were available, and people were deeply divided. And and even with that, you know, there were early, really early uh, attempts to use to create um, before the Mellotron. You know, there were attempts to to use tapes, and so yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot. Happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, like, 
you know, all of the Santana stuff from like 72 to 75 is all fusion music, you know, Lotus and Absolutely. Welcome and Love, Devotion, Surrender. And then, oh, you yeah. know, so is Eddie Palmieri's stuff from that era. And so is like when Absolutely. the Fania All-Stars were playing with Billy Cobham, you know, it's like, Absolutely. it's all one thing, you know. And then I feel like there was a marketing part of it too, like where groups like Mahavishnu and Return to Forever and Weather Report yeah. got a different marketing push than Donald Byrd, you know, who was doing oh, something absolutely. very different at the exact same time, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, there's a... I mean, it's funny. It's strange to think about a record like Caravanserai. You know, a Caravanserai um, was actually a certified platinum record at the time. And, I mean, that was the record, I think it was the record after Abraxas. Mm -hmm. It was Caravan, it was Caravanserai, and that record was was massively popular. I mean, it, 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 I mean the whole way people took music and the place that music had in people's lives. I mean, you would have to take a song like Take Five. I mean, Take Five was arguably a kind of fusion. It was, it was. It, I mean, it was the number one song in the world, which is kind of jaw dropping to think about. It's jaw-dropping to think about the fact that, you know, there was a tradition, a long tradition of instrumental singles, of instrumental songs. Um, they were not necessarily jazz, but the instrumental songs that were popular hits. Mm -hmm. I mean, people probably don't remember that the Commodores, you know, the Commodores, which was delivered unto Pop Lionel Richie, the very first Commodore single was an instrumental called Machine Gun, which had nothing to do with the band of gypsies, you know? Right, um, right. I, I, or, or, or really, um, the keyboard player played with the, with the Beatles. Oh, Billy Preston. Billy Preston. Billy Preston, yeah. Billy Preston, his first single away from the Beatles and the Stones was Out of Space. That was his first single that was, a, that was uh, uh, very popular. Not to mention the Edgar Winters uh, Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and there were, and, and there are a lot of them, you know what I mean? Going up to, up through Chuck Mangione and uh, Birdland, which was kind of, I mean, sort of like the pinnacle of fusion popularity was uh, the Weather Report song Birdland be, being a number one single. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And then you listen yeah. to like Ohio Players and Earth, Wind and Fire albums oh, yeah. and there are these wild instrumentals on there. There's like Abs there's absolutely. the one Earth, Wind and Fire record and I can't remember the name of the piece, but it's like a uh, 13 minute instrumental. Oh, you're talking, you're talking about la, la, probably Last Days in Time and the song Power. Mm-hmm. And it just goes. It's and a, the same thing with their live album, Gratitude. There's that long jam instrumental that opens the concert, you know, which is, is like wild. Absolutely. <laughs> It really, it really is. I mean, and, and, and think about the, um, so much of that is tied back to the introduction of the Hugh Tracy Kalimba, which is kind of a westernized version of the African Imbira, and that, you know, Maurice White electrified it. And, and, and really, I'll tell you something, it's really a, a, a crazy observation. When Maurice White came out with the Kalimba and started playing, the way he kind of phrased these kind of pentatonic phrasing, listen to that and listen to Joe Zawinul's 
playing, phrasing on songs like Black Market. It's, it's kind of shocking the influence of a Maurice White playing kalimba on a, a Joe Zalino. Like, you, you, when you listen, you go, wait a minute, that's... <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, there's things like that went on. Yeah, no, and, there was uh, not, these broad conversations that people don't really pick up on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And they, um, and, and, you know, and they had their moment. And, of course, there was, there was also the strong influence of jazz rock fusion on uh, British prog music. I mean, you think about, you know, um, their influence on the band Yes, their influence on Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, very strong influence on, uh, on Jeff Beck. I mean, Jeff Beck, I mean, basically, after, you know, his exposure to Yan Hammer from the Mahavish, the keyboard player from the Mahavishnu Orchestra, I mean, his phrasing, he adopted a lot of the phrasing, and I don't know if there's a chicken or the egg thing, but, um, but um, one of the things about Yan Hammer's playing is that he had a distinctly guitar-like phrasing that he used inside the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and that very much influenced Jeff Beck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I talked to Lenny White, he was telling me that the he and a couple of the other guys from Return to Forever were hanging out with uh, Chris Squire and Patrick Moraz from Yes around the time that those Absolutely. guys were making Relayer. And he said, you know, that one of their one of the Yes members' wives asked them, you know, like they had played them a a Return to Forever album, and they said, you know, how long did you guys take? And said they they spent like three days in the studio, and the guys from Yes just cracked up because they were like, we spend a week on a drum sound, you know, and these guys (laughs) crank out an album in three days, and it sounds like this, you know. (laughs) Oh yeah, well you could hear. I mean, you could clearly. I mean, the, the absolute influence on Patrick Moraz on the song Sound Chaser. You know, I mean, it's incredible. Like his, his, I mean, really, we barely heard, I mean, he introduced the Fender Rhodes into the Yes sound. And that was a shocking addition to their sound. Because mainly, people, fans are used to hearing the organ, and they were used to hearing piano, mm-hmm. and they were used to hearing uh, Mellotron. So, I mean, when that Fender Rhodes uh, comes in, it's like, whoa. Not to mention his incredible synthesizer playing. Yeah. His incredible mini mood playing on that on that track, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, so it's a lot. The influence of it, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I think about uh, a, a record like Spectrum, you know, which is hugely influential on, you know, and, and also Weather Report's influence on hip-hop, the influence of Spectrum on trip-hop, you know, it's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to kind of start kind of at the beginning of your career. How did you mm-hmm. meet Ronald Shannon Jackson and join the Decoding Society? Uh, that really was um, because of my friend, the bassist Melvin Gibbs, you know, who uh, 
he played with the Rollins band, and he has his fantastic band, uh, Harriet Tubman, um, with Brandon Ross and J.T. Lewis. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we, you know, I, I, I kind of have been playing in kind of uh, R&B bands and top forty bands, but I, I loved, you know, I had been introduced to so much music, you know, from musicians I met in my high school at Brooklyn Tech, and. Um, I had one particular friend named Reggie Sylvester, two two friends in particular, a uh, drummer named Reggie Sylvester, who is just a, just a weird black prog kid, you know, who was into every kind of thing. And he turned me on to Jack Bruce. He turned me on to, I mean, I, I was already a fan of uh, Cream singles, but he turned me on to Jack Bruce's record, records uh, with Carla Blay, you know, um, and a keyboard, young keyboard player named Raymond Jones, who uh, who also uh, I met him in like a social studies class, and we became fast friends. And um, and he went on to play in the band Chic, uh, the kind of disco progressive disco band Chic. And and this friend of mine from high school literally plays the Rhodes part on Good Times, a record that revolutionized disco and hip hop. It really started hip-hop, modern hip-hop as we know it. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine from high school was playing the Rhodes part. And I, <laughs> I remember seeing, going to see uh, Sheik at the Beacon Theater, and Rapper's Delight had come out and was very controversial. And it was this incredible moment when they're playing Good Times and the house was packed. And at a certain point, they did a breakdown, and Nile Rodgers started to go into the first verse of Rapper's Delight, and the people lost their minds. Wow. And, <laughs> and, and and he did that live, and he started do, doing the rhyme for Rapper's Delight. And, and it was a moment of such visceral, cultural contact. And that was the moment that I realized that in that moment, I was clear that hip-hop was here to stay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and my friend Raymond Jones was on stage <laughs> playing piano, playing a uh, playing electric piano. Yeah, yeah, yep. So Melvin, and, uh, so, so, so yeah, so yeah. so Melvin, so so basically, I started. You know, so I have been in the jazz workshop, uh, is an after school program that was led by a saxophonist named Gene Gee, who went on to play in, in Sam Rivers ensembles, and he was my first African American male teacher in my whole school career in this after-school jazz program. And, um, you know, I also went to the Muse, which was like a, 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 a kind of alternative music school um, led by the great jazz bassist Reggie Workman. And, um, and, you know, Melvin was, used to go to the Muse, and this was a time when we had a neighborhood musician uh, named Arthur Rains, who's a multi-instrumentalist who played guitar, played piano and saxophone, and, and is the, the greatest. He was he was the greatest. A rest in peace to him. And um, and uh, I tried to start a little kind of fusion combo called Point of View, and Melvin was the bassist. And we had a drummer named Greg Barrett and a, a keyboard player who was a student of Lenny Tristano's named Derek Baines. And... Uh, Lots of lots of rehearsals, very few gigs, <laughs> and um, and uh, basically, 
you know, I, I kind of started playing with this R&B songwriter named uh, uh, Tashith, um, uh, and Tashith had written music for, Ev- for Evelyn Champagne King. He was the keyboard player for um, the BT Express, you know, which BT Express was this kind of disco band as well, but they had the legendary jazz saxophonist Carlos Ward was a member of BT Express, and he played with John Coltrane. It was cra- it was great, it was great, it was crazy in Brooklyn at that time. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, so after Point of View, my little fusion combo kind of broke up. You know, we just didn't have enough to sustain us, um, but we all stayed pretty good friends, and. Um, and I was playing with this cat, Kashif, and I used to bump heads with him all the time because I was into rock and roll music and Hendrix and all of the things and Ma Vishnu and all these things. And he was a very commercially minded R&B uh, producer, songwriter, very talented. But we, we used to bump heads about rock and roll music and, uh, all the time. Mm. And um, I, I think it, it came to, to a head with him and I when he decided to be provocative and say that, say, uh, pronounce that Jimi Hendrix was a white artist because <laughs> he was popular with white people. And I, and I, and I, I mean, we didn't come, we never came to blows, but we, we had arguments, a lot of, um, and, and, and arguing with was great because he, he really sharpened for me where, where I was coming from. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, eventually he let me go. Uh, he fired me and the drummer. And um, at that point, I was living in Park Slope in this apartment. And I got a phone call. And, and Melvin was said, man, you got to hear this drummer I started playing with. And I went to this, uh, this club uh, called, I think it was, uh, I think Jackie Byard had a club in, like, in New York. And it was his club, and that's when I heard for the first time I heard Ronald Shannon Jackson. Uh huh. And his music was so weird and enchanting. I mean, it was very avant-garde. I, I by that time I'd been exposed to our ensemble of Chicago and Ornette Coleman, um, like like his record science fiction, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I'd been exposed to that. So I, I started listening to that and and. Uh, kind of music but he was pretty far out but he was also really accessible in his melodies you know and um and uh, i decided to go see him on my own he was playing with james blood omer um and david murray and amina lee at at the public theater this is when they had jazz at the public theater or into zaki shanga gay and the poet uh Playwright Intizak Shenge and David Murray uh, convinced Joe Papp to do Jazz as a Public Theater, which is an incredible, incredible music series. Mm. Um, and and I saw that's the, the next time I heard Ron Shan Jackson was James Blood Omer, which kind of blew the top of my head off. It was crazy town, and uh, and I I walked I stepped to him after the show, and I just said to him, Mr. Jackson, I think you're a great musician. And he said, oh, where, where was that? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm Melvin's friend. And, and, he, and he said, oh, man, okay, thank you, cool, you know. And, um, and then uh, I got a phone call from Melvin, and, and he said, Melvin wants to hear you play. 
And I was like, uh, I mean, Melvin Carr said, Shannon wants to hear you play. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and I was pretty freaked out. And, uh, and I kind of came in there playing my busted up fake Bill Connors licks. And, uh, and, and he just said, be here next Tuesday. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. <laughs> now, what was the what was the dynamic in that group? Because Shannon came from working with some very dominant leaders. Like he'd played with Eiler, he'd played oh, yeah. with Ornette, he'd played with Cecil. So when he started his own band, like what kind of boss was he? How much input and room for expressiveness did you have well, in the music? You know, I had a certain. We had a certain amount. I mean. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, the decoding societies, well, it's funny because it was an evolution because the decoding society at first was a big ensemble. Um, Charles Brackeen was in it, uh, the great guitar, late guitarist, Bird Nix, you know, so we lost Charles Brackeen. Billy, you know, rest in peace, Billy Bang, the great violinist who was a huge just an incredible kind of big brother figure to me and Melvin. Um, Abdul Munir Fatah played cello. Yusef Yancey played trumpet. It was Rasto Vasconcelos, who was the brother of Nana Vasconcelos, who Nana Vasconcelos was very famous for, for being the Brazilian percuss percussionist in Weather Report. Mm -hmm. um, and worked he was with in Don Cherry, band, too, right? And worked with Don Cherry a great deal. And um, yeah, Rasto was a was a was a cool dude, man. And uh, I don't think he spoke much English, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he he didn't, you know. But incredible presence, and this was like, this was a, a a rambling, rollicking ensemble, and we we uh, made the record "Eye on You," which is the first Decoding Society album. And uh, uh, Bayer Lancaster, the great Philly sax player, was in that band. And, um, and it was just uh, a, a kind of an avant-garde uh, uh, avant traveling Wilburys. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was, no, we weren't, all, we weren't that famous for it to be that. But, we, but it was like a just uh, rolling thunder review. That's what I'm trying to say. It was kind of an avant-garde rolling thunder review. And then um, I think Shannon felt it was, too many cats to pay, um, and he started to thin the band out, and then eventually it became a quart. It became a quartet with just me, and Melvin, and and Jackie uh, Jackie Byard on on uh, um, Byard Lancaster, mm -hmm. Byard Lancaster on 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 saxophone, alto primarily. And then he was experimenting the whole time to bring different people in. And then at a certain point, he asked, well, what musicians do you know? And, and um, basically, um, I wound up reaching out to a, a, a grade school friend of mine named Zane Massey and uh, another friend of mine um, who was playing uh, around, Reverend Bruce Johnson, and um, and that eventually became the Decoding Society. We became like a, a kind of a, a double uh, a band with two bassists. You know, uh, Henry Scott 
was that trumpet player. But um, he was he, he was very um, he yelled a lot. <laughs> he, he 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 yelled a lot, and but he was also a, a mentor, and I learned a lot. I mean, he was that was my for real music school. You know, I learned a lot. I mean, I I had never traveled on an airplane. I mean, the first time I traveled on an airplane, we played the North Sea Jazz Festival in 1980 and i'd never flown before i never had to have a passport you know hmm. so so he was but but we shaped the ensemble shaped a lot of what happened because shannon essentially wrote melodies and um and we would have to you, you know we'd figure out how they worked harmonically and and between myself you know, we did. We all kind of figured it out. And so each succeeding Dakota Society, uh, you know, had its own stamp. But it was it was very much Ronald Shannon Jackson and the Dakota Society. Um, yeah. He was oh he was a leader up front. I mean that was I mean, I mean the idea of the the bands as equal partnerships. I mean that's a later kind of. That's a later thing. I mean, it was always a band leader and the band for the longest time. I think the Beatles were maybe the first band where that was kind of a thing. And they had to sue each other to get that to happen. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, but he was very much the band leader. I mean, I, I would say, I would probably say maybe the R Ensemble of Chicago was a lot less hierarchical. But you know, uh, but up until then, you know, bands, you know, I mean, Sunra, he Sunra let it be known like every gig that he was a leader, you know. Yeah. And um, and and quite uh, and almost cultish in his pronouncements around leadership. Um, you know, I saw Sunra many times, and he was he made no bones about it. He he made no bones about it, but um. But Chandler, you know, he insisted that we put ourselves in his music and and then yelled at us for when we didn't make the mark. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I look back I look back fondly. Yeah, yeah. The dynamics of his of the compositions I think are really interesting because when you listen to that stuff, even though it's got two bassists working a lot of the time you know and mm -hmm. all this thunder from the drums the yeah. the guitar and the horns in particular the horn lines mm -hmm. are like way up at the top of the horns range both the alto oh, and yeah. the trumpet and it's very interesting that there's all that space in the middle cuz you got these really high pitched horns then you got all this bass and drums and you kind of yeah. could wander around in that whole middle ground with guitar and then also yeah. with banjo yeah, guitar, banjo, and then eventually, kind of those early guitar synthesizer stuff. Yeah, it was um, the thing about Shannon's music, which is so um, enchanting to me, was that he's from he's from Fort Worth, Texas. He is from Texas, okay, and he was also a Buddhist. So it was a collision of Eastern and Western at a fundamental level. And you can't get his music without understanding that he was 
an African-American man who came up from the South, from the Western South in the West, and you know, he did all the things. He's like, uh, you know, he had, he had to get straight. He had been strung out, you know. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to note was that, um, you know, Coltrane, really, his kind of spiritual journey really had an impact on musicians of his generation. Castle was his age and Castle was slightly younger. Mm. And, and a lot of people straightened up and flew right because of, Coltrane, because everybody knew Coltrane had to get straight, and he did, and he espoused vegetarianism, you know, and all of these things, and meditation, and a lot of people were very affected, because also his music was at this incredible, transformative, visionary level, and, you know, that seemed a pathway, he kind of like, and then when he, he passed way too soon, uh, I mean, it affected a lot of folks. And, and one of the things, you know, that I remember is that, you know, Coltrane's passing, a lot of people fell off the wagon. A lot of people, it was a depressing thing, um, his passing. Mm. And I think Channel was, was affected by that. And, and in a way, his spiritual practice, you know, Buddhism helped him to get out of addiction. And... um you know, he was he was a he was deep deep. You know, he talked about you know the way things were around Fort Worth. Um, you know, one of the things that bonded Shannon to Ornette is that they came from the same town. They came from the same area of Texas. Mm -hmm. And he would tell us harrowing stories. He would tell us stories about friends of his. You know that um, you know they were out. You know, they were out past sundown. He had friends of his that he, they, they went out doing whatever and they were never seen again. And nobody ever, you know, ever found out what happened to them, you know. And yeah, he, he, he witnessed and survived a lot. Yeah. And, and he was also filled with rage about this country. And, you know, he was, he, he, he could be a pretty angry dude. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you know, and but um, at the same time, you know, I listened to a song like Iola, you know, and it's so lovely. I mean, he, he just um, so lovely. And I remember when we were in Italy and we were by this pawn shop and they had a, a six string echo banjo and I bought that banjo and that wound up going on all those records. You know, I still have that banjo. Huh. Yeah. You can, I wanted to ask you about your sense of the the environment at that time because I've talked about this a little with Melvin and also with Brandon Ross. 
it mm -hmm. seems like there was kind of a renaissance of black guitarists in the late 70s and early 80s. There was you, there was Brandon, there was Blood Ulmer, there was Michael Gregory Jackson, there was Kelvin Bell, mm -hmm. there was Borelli, there was Burn Nix, Sonny Chirac oh, was yeah. starting to come back. So, I mean, like, what did that feel like in that sort of loft jazz into post-punk jazz funk era like well, did it seem like a well, community or was it competitive or somewhere in between well you know we, we were young dudes we were we were young dudes trying to get laid you know um of course there was competition but there was a lot of camaraderie um uh, you know i i think about i mean sunny i mean like blood and and sunny chirac and pete cozy you know, mm -hmm. these were the these were the mentors. I mean, of the avant-garde guitar thing. You know, they were really they were the the older they were the uncles or older brothers. You know, mm -hmm. um, to uh, to us. And you know, I, I mean, what what I give Larry Coriel a lot of respect because he really championed Sonny Chirac, um, you know, you know, in talking about someone, you know, when, when Sonny Chirac was playing with, with Herbie Mann and, and, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, I mean, you could almost throw Grant Green into that mix as well. Mm -hmm. um, not, as, not so much as avant-garde, but he was a funky alternative. He was a funky alternative to Wes Montgomery because Wes was, West so West Montgomery so dominated, you know what guitar was. I mean, even though Kenny Burrell had his partisan, but but Grant Green was funky. Like Grant Green was was was, you know, in a way, West Montgomery was almost like a reverend or like the holiest of holies. You know, mm -hmm. like he was impeccable. He was, you know, not to be questioned. He was incredible, right? But Grant Green was down, you know, was the final come down, you know, Grant Green, you know, was, uh, he, he was on a, he was on the street level. And so, you know, artists like, like that, in, in a way, you know, Omer comes out of that tradition somewhat and then went left, you know, uh, Sonny Chirac was always taking it to the edge. You know, I would say, uh, uh, to, 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 to CG who was formerly known as Dharma Song Bunaz, you know, played uh, uh, played with Farrah Saunders, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was a kind of, still is a kind of ab incredible avant-garde voice on the guitar. Um, so, yeah, yeah, Pete Cozy, I mean, I mean, Pete Cozy was acid jazz for real. I mean... And as well as, you know, being the, the black Chicago hippie with the big afro who scandalized everyone, you know, on that Muddy Waters record. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. Electric Mud. You know, he was the guitar on Electric Mud. And, um, you know, and, and, and folks like that are still up church. You know what I mean? Uh, on a level, just as an iconic character to identify with, you know, and then there's, you know, the cast that played, you know, like who first, I think he got, you know, not in the rock, in the gas field, but you know, Ernie Isley with the Isley brothers. I mean, Ernie Isley 
single-handedly resurrected the Isley Brothers' career, you know, as not just as a guitarist, but as a producer and a drummer and playing bass and all the things. And, um, you know, he never really got his, his, his just dap in the 70s. Like, he was never given the respect that he deserved. And the Isley Brothers had chart-copping hits with right. that sound, with that, po- with that post-Hendrick sound. They had, and not just one, they had hits. And the 70s kind of uh, guitar media, uh, um, guitar media just wouldn't pay attention. They refused to pay attention to him. Like he never was on the cover of Guitar Player Magazine or Guitar World. When he was, you know, when, when I mean, when his impact was obvious. You know, and and audible to hear. What's interesting about Isley to me is like, you, you say post Hendrix, but what I hear is not that. I don't hear him. I don't hear where he came from when I listen to him. I hear mm. where he's going because I don't think of him as post Hendrix. I think of him as pre Shredder. You know, well, like he yeah, had that. Maybe, he, he kind of did a lot of the things that hard rock guitarists in the 80s wound up doing uh, uh-huh it, it, well he's a i mean i mean think about it you know hendrix passes and who who um like you have to realize that steve ray vaughn is later like steve ray vaughn kind of revives a certain language and and you can't separate him from albert king mm-hmm. you know what i mean like when you hear steve ray vaughn you're hearing Equal, you're hearing three things. You're hearing Jimi Hendrix, you're hearing Albert King, and you're hearing Stevie Ray Vaughan. And you're hearing Stevie Ray Vaughan synthesizing his influences to create a, an original voice. That's what's so remarkable about Stevie Ray Vaughan. Is that when you hear, he, you obviously hear, you obviously hear Hendrix, you obviously hear Albert King, but most of all, you hear Stevie Ray Vaughan. And that's the thing that's so incredible about him, but that's later, right? You think about after Hendrix, there's there's Ernie Isley, Frank Marino, mm-hmm. and Rob and Robin Trower, and Eddie Hazel, and and Eddie Hazel, of course, Eddie Hazel, Eddie Hazel, of course, yes, Eddie, Eddie Hazel. But then, but but that's the that he also proves the point. I mean, Eddie Hazel never. I mean, I mean, Eddie Hazel got less attention and less dap. They're Ernie Isley. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's brutal. It's brutal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that was the way. You know. I mean, those are the dynamics of that of that time period. Um, but yeah. But see, all of those, all you know, all of those um, voices, and all of these various players, including Carlos. You know. And of course, you know the folks like Montish, Tom McLaughlin, and you know all of these people were uh, had an impact on us coming up in the '80s. I mean, one, I mean, one of the great losses of that time period was the guitarist um, Alphonia Timms. You know, Alphonia Timms um, just, just, I mean, kind of. He was a bridge between blood and juju music. I mean, just such a unique, you know, Ornette, like, loved him. You know, he's such a unique personage 
and such a fabulous voice on the guitar. And uh, he had a he had an enlarged heart condition and, and basically had a just a, a a crazy heart attack, you know, in his twenties. And it was just I just he's playing played with Oliver Lake and Jump Up, and um, you know, opposite you know one of one of the I mean great guitars of that great guitars and basses of that era, Jerome Harris, you know, Jerome Harris, I mean, fabulous, played guitar um, with Sonny Rollins. And I, I, there was a, a, a concert at Carnegie Hall that I will never forget with, I mean, Jerome Harris, man, I mean, fabulous player and, and equally fabulous on bass. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You should check out his record algorithm, you know, you know, beautiful guitarist and bassist. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Him, I'm not even familiar. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, when you hear the Bad Brains, Doc, Dr. No from the Bad Brains, I mean, they're channeling, as much as it's punk, the Bad Brains is a punk jazz fusion um, thing. So they were listening to Ma Vishnu and Return to Forever, as well as the Sex Pistols. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and out of that comes hardcore. I mean, you hear the fusion influence in Black Black with Greg Ginn. You know, you hear, you know, you hear, you know, how how that um, impacted. Um, a, you know, in a band like King Crimson, that later version of King Crimson, it's not possible without all these different currents colliding. Um, yeah. I think what amazes what the thing that people never got from the Bad Brains to me was, you know, everybody heard them and wanted to play faster, but nobody heard them right. and wanted to play tighter. And they were the tightest fucking band. I mean, if you listen to Un rock unreal. to Rock for Light, you know, it's unreal. it's 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 brain unreal. melting to listen to how yeah. tight they are. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Unreal! Un unreal! Unreal. I mean, at their at their height, I mean, they were just un. They were an unstoppable experience. It was. Uh, I I saw the the greatest mosh pit I ever saw was when the Ritz had decamped to Studio Fifty Four. The Ritz had essentially moved from Eleventh Street, and it, it had moved uptown. And the new Ritz was essentially Studio Fifty Four. Mm -hmm. And and there was a low balcony. There there was you know the floor and there's a balcony, but the balcony kind of swept down and was not super high above the heads of the floor. And so the Brad Brains are playing. At a certain point, they're doing pay to come or something. They're doing some insanity, and the first kid jumps off the balcony into onto the floor <laughs> and once the crowd holy shit once he did that and the crowd carried him it's absolute pandemonium i've never seen anything to i've never seen anything to equal it literally <laughs> the club was it was like the audience was boiling people the, the security the security they they were they, they were overwhelmed. They couldn't do. The people were jump. They were they go. 
they run around and leap off the balcony, and they and they would. I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I remember I saw Fishbone at the Palladium oh. with two live oh. crew opening, and uh, and Angelo swam all the way across the crowd to the balcony, climbed up into mm -hmm. the balcony, and jumped back down. You know, like oh, yeah. on his back oh, yeah. into the crowd. And I was just oh, yeah. like, this, oh, is, yeah. this is too much, man. This is... <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, somebody's going somebody's gonna to break their neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Intrepid. We, we're, we're, we're in, pretty intrepid. And so, you know, that was, it, was a, it was a really heady time. I think the, the other thing about that time period was the, the club ecology. I mean, we're talking about early 80s right up to 86 it was the early 80s was i mean it was like club wonderland it was out of there were so many places to play in new york city for live music and you could see legendary people people on the come up i mean it was uh incredible yeah yeah ask you about this new record that you've got the freeform funky freaks oh, yeah. record which is the third uh, the third album right yes it's, it's the third it's the 73rd performance and it's the third studio studio album and it's and it is produced by grant calvin weston so so now in our our narrative our cycle all three of us each of us has produced one studio album i produced uh, urban mythology um and jamal Adin produced the bon vivant and and uh calvin has produced this record oh okay okay it's it's very interesting to me the the concept of this group because jamal Adin and calvin like they're they're known as a team like they were with ornette and then yeah. they made an album with Ulmer yeah. in the 80s, and they made one yeah. with James Carter, and they did that record with Derek Bailey. So yeah. when you're working with them, do you see yourself operating within a lineage of things they've done, or is it a purely open situation existing on its own terms? Like, how do you think about it? Well, I, I think about the fact that the three of us, I mean, I, I'm always, the thing that defines the freeform funky freaks is the fact that we've known each other and known of each other for a really long time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, all my things, every, it all starts in the 80s, right? And I played on uh, Jamal Adin's record. I knew Calvin, I was friendly with him. Um, I, I, I played on his of solo record um, with him and Bill Bruford, you know, mm -hmm. and um, on a one track. And the circumstance came, you know, and it really is all about this club tonic, 
and tonics is the first time, you know, we, Calvin said, hey, man, you want to do a thing? And I said, okay, sure. I figured, okay, we'll get together and then we'll figure out what we're doing. So I show up and there's no, it was, it was kind of crazy. It was like too late to sound check, whatever. And so we just wound up playing. We just wound up just grooving, playing, vamping, doing the thing, right? And it turned out well. It turned out pretty, it was a pretty fun thing. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, you, that was fun. That was great. So I get a second, because this was really, Calvin was the one that made the phone call. And Calvin said, hey, man, why don't you come down to Philly and we'll, and we'll do a thing. So they, okay, and I'm thinking, okay, so we'll, I'll come down and then we'll finally work out what we're going to do, right, what we're going to play. <laughs> and literally, Jamaluddin showed up. It was Johnny Brenda's. The club is packed. Jamaluddin shows up literally five minutes before we're supposed to start playing. He shows up and plugs into the bass, and we just start playing. And and when we did the Singatonic, Jamali said, yo, man, have we ever played together? And I was like, you know what? We've never, the three of us, had never played together. And again, there was no, we didn't have a sound check. We didn't have rehearsal. It was like whatever, I guess, Thank God that front of house engineer, you know, was, you know, just put the faders up and away we went. And then after the second time it happened, I was like, wow, well, maybe this is, maybe this is what it is. And then I said, hey, man, would you be down to come out to this studio in Staten Island, Phoenix? And, and we just set up, got, you know, they came from Philly, down to Philly and we played, you know, we played a bunch of things and they kind of got divided up into different, you know, and that was the third time we've ever played together. And that's when the concept uh, emerged from that. Again, we basically set up, you know, we got sounds and then we started to play. We didn't work out vamps. We didn't talk about anything. We started to play. Yeah. So then that, that's when the methodology kind of came into focus. It's like, okay, unlike so many other people, most people do not know the, the amount of times they play together because you play, you play together for sound check, you play in rehearsals, you just jam, you do the gig, but you lose count of how many times. But we have an exact count of the exact number of times we've ever played together. And the only time we've played together is when we're when we're performing and and we extended that into the into the uh studio session so so basically him of the third galaxy is the 73rd time we've ever played together e even though it was remote <laughs> mm -hmm. oh so this one was you recorded know? remotely you guys weren't actually in the room together we weren't we weren't in the room together so we had to work out we had to agree to a few things like number one whatever was played it's whatever's played there's no second takes there's no second there are no second or third fixing takes mm. there's no overdub there are no overdub so a lot of things sound 
on the record, like you hear simultaneous things happening, and that's all layering in real time. There's no, there's, there's no, the synthesizer things or the ambient things that you hear are happening at the same time. There's no overdub uh-huh. on the record. Okay. And there, there's a bit of, there's a bit of live looping. Is looping because we, 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 we had live looping, you know, on the first record. I, I think I used a boomerang and looped live. But there's no going back and overdubbing. So anything you hear that's a loop, those loops were done in, in, in real time. And with the pandemic thing, it was strange because basically Calvin played his parts, played his things, and he sent them parts to Jamaldine. Jamaldine played the first thing that came, you know, with each, each kind of uh, piece. He played the first thing that came to his mind and didn't go back and, and change it. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy nerve-wracking for me because I realized as soon as I hit record, whatever I do, that's it. So it was kind of, oh, am I going to do it today? Oh, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I, I do it today. And then the venture said, okay, I'm doing it today. And I have, um, you know, this whole array of guitar, you know, to pedal, you know, my pedal board. But, you know, I have a lot of parallel stuff and also playing kind of virtual synthesizer things, playing hardware kind of synthesis. Um, mainly audio activated as opposed to pitch to MIDI. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, all of it is happens like everything with, that I'm doing with expression pedals, I'm doing them while it's happening. You know, and that's pretty much it. And it's one time through. And once I've done it, that's that. And it was, <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> now, when you guys were playing live, you know, I mean, the third time you played together, you made an album. So, like, when you went and played shows after that, was there any element of, like, pulling a riff that had appeared on the record, or was it all fully improvised if, at if, shows? If that happened, if that happened, it happened without any discussion. It would happen, like, basically, if something shows up, you know, then it, it does. But but generally, there's very little, um, there's really no, you know, it's wild. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's weird to make a record and know, okay, this might be your favorite track, but we're probably not going to play that. Song. <laughs> we're probably, we, we may play something similar. We may do something that touches on it. I know that there was some, um, uh, one one of the there was a piece from the first album and we were touring I believe in Germany and we played a, almost an approximation but it was just we didn't talk about it it just kind of happened if it happens it happens mm-hmm. but we're, we but when we sound check we would sound check singly and only in pairs the three of us literally do not play together until it's time for the show. Ah, uh-huh. okay. So it's like a discipline at this point. It, 
yeah, no, it really is. It's because it's kind of like we have a numbered. It's kind of like we we kind of did our own NFT thing way before you know. I mean, starting in two thousand and seven. I mean, we 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 basically have numbered editions of our performances, and we have a numbered edition of the exact number of times the three of us have played together. Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah. Coming from an, a, a background that contains as much improvisation as yours does, but you know, both with Shannon and then with projects like this, how do you return to you know the traditional quote-unquote rock show dynamic? of like a living color gig where you know what order the songs are in and there's yeah. only this much space to make anything mm-hmm. change to make anything different. I mean, I've always thought that, you know, in some senses a rock show is almost like a Broadway show in the sense that all the songs come in a right. certain order, you've got moves that you've got yeah. to hit in certain places. So, how right. do you adju- well, you know, make that adjustment mentally? Oh, I guess well, well, interestingly enough, See, I've never, I've never let go of pop music or rock and roll music or the forms of, you know, it, it's like I access a different part of my aesthetic. You know, like I love pop music. I love tunes. I love, you know, I, 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 I do. Mm. And as well as I love on the spot, you know, improv. So, and there's also, there's a, whole, a lot of area in between. So, yeah, because um, the song is a structure, but the song is a narrative, and the song is telling a story, and depending on how the band, each individual within it, depending on what we're feeling and how we're doing it, the interpretations can vary wildly. I mean, it can be the same music, and, you know, sometimes... There's the kind of phone it in. I mean, you really see that with the blues, big time. I mean, I saw, um, I've seen Mr. King, Miss B.B. King a few times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he, there's a, a kind of show that he does. It's a kind of standard show. It's very satisfying. You know, it's how blue can you get. And he's done it a thousand times. I saw him one time at the, at the Beacon Theater open for Miles Davis, who's a double bill of B.B. King and Miles Davis. And let me tell you, B.B. King went up to the mic and said, it is an honor to open for the great Miles Davis. And he proceeded to burn the Beacon Theater to ashes. He went all the way in. And it's the same tune, you know. Mm -hmm. The thrill (laughs) is gone. But, But let me tell you, he said the thrill is not just gone, you know. The thrill, I mean, he exiled the thrill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, he was not the, and I'll tell you something. Miles came on with all his mystique and everything, but it took about three tunes. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, B.B. <laughs> King was not effing around. He came out and he, I was like, man, he was killing it. And that's the, you know, that's the thing. Any, the, Structure is doesn't preclude interpretation at all. In fact, it's just a framework around interpretation. 
Yeah, yeah. I remember in, this was maybe 95, 96, I saw, I got to see Junior Kimbrough play. Mm-hmm. He was at Roseland and he was opening for Iggy Pop because Iggy was a huge mm. Junior Kimbrough fan. And so he brought him up to mm-hmm. open the show. And it was like 45 minutes and it was, it felt like it was one song. And it was like right in mm-hmm. that middle ground between John Lee Hooker and Band of Gypsies. It was just this like 45-minute mm-hmm. blues trance. And I was just like, this is insane. I can't believe what I'm seeing. You know, and he oh, never yeah. even stood up from his chair. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, when when the mojo uh, and off, you know, and funny, interestingly enough, mojo is a term that's only used now by businessmen. Businessmen are always talking about mojo this and mojo that. It's hilarious, right? But when the mojo comes down, and that could be in any genre with any band, when it really is a thing, it is something to behold. When When everyone is in sync and they are telling the story for real, like a great actor doing a monologue, that you forget the gears, you forget, you you are drawn into the story being told. And you're not thinking about, you're not thinking about, you're not thinking about, you're not thinking about theory, you're not thinking about technique, you're not analyzing, you're just in what it is. You know, and that's a powerful thing. 